Well, good morning to you, and uh, on behalf of Pastor Rob and the elders, I'm Harry Fletcher, and we welcome you who have joined us in the auditorium, out in the fellowship hall, and those who are joining online as well. Thank you uh, for coming to worship with us this morning. So you begin the service with good news and bad news, and you've got to start with the bad news first. The bad news is we say goodbye to the Apostle John in John 21 today. So we're going to wrap it up today. But the good news is Pastor Rob is all invigorated and just ready. He just can't wait to get up here in the pulpit. It's been four weeks, and we can't wait to have him back. And he's going to uh, start a new series of study. And I'm not sure how much I should say or steal any of his thunder except to say I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I love biographical studies. I'll just leave it there. And to think we're going to look at a, a great man of God who had a human nature just like us, had his shortcomings, his failures, and yet how God used that mighty uh, spokesman for the Lord. So looking forward to that so very much. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, it's uh, John chapter 21, fourth book of the New Testament, the last chapter in John. John chapter 21, and uh, that's where we've been for the last uh, four Sundays. Have you ever thought about the fact that of all the creatures on earth, that mankind himself is probably the most suffering, the most troubled creature there is? And you have to ask yourself the question, why is that so? Assuming that's true, why is it true? And I think the answer to that is a pretty simple one. And that is he has one of his feet in the infinite world and his other foot in the finite world. And he's constantly torn between the two worlds. I think it's true of Christians. I think it's true of non-Christians. A verse of scripture that I've loved through the years is Ecclesiastes 3.11 that says this. He has, that is he, God has put eternity into their hearts. I just remember that verse captivating me. And it gave me the sense that every time I talk to any human being anywhere in the world, there is a sense of a God consciousness that God himself initiated and he put in the heart of every person. He put eternity in their hearts. That's the infinite world in which we live. And then we, we find out that Pascal would take that very verse of scripture, and then he said this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Now, as I think about the infinite world, the finite world, the two kinds of people, uh, those who are Christian, uh, they've trusted Christ, they've been born again, they've passed from death unto life. You would say as you sit there, if I asked you the question, yes, I am a Christian. And then there are those who don't know the Lord. And uh, yet maybe God has been at work in their heart and you've been on a spiritual journey and you're coming along, but you just haven't made that step over. And, and as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, going back to almost 60 years uh, when I got out of the army, and I remember especially that, that sermon on John 3, you must be born again, and the battle in my heart. I mean, it was raging. 
I, I knew I needed to trust Christ, but then I had all these questions and things, and I just wasn't sure about that. But I'm so glad on that one day especially, I trusted Christ and passed from death unto life. And then as Christians, we go through our Christian life. We've all been there where there's a struggle and God's dealing with us and we know we need to take this step, but the battle rages within, whether it's the sin nature, whether it's the spiritual warfare with the enemy, uh, but he's constantly pulling us back. And so we have to decide what am I, what am I going to do? And if I make that decision, you know, am I going to be able to live up to it and, or am I going to regret it? So this morning we come to our Lord's final words in the Gospel of John and our series on Christ designed for discipleship. And uh, we're in John 21, the last verses 19b on down to 25. And the main thought this morning is the duty of a disciple is commanded by Christ. That's the main uh, theme of where we're going this morning. The duty of a disciple is commanded by Christ. And it really is my intention this morning, not to badger you, uh, but to encourage you that if you find yourself in one of those two spheres we just talked about, you're on the spiritual journey, but you haven't made the decision yet to trust Christ. Or you are a Christian, but you know you're not a fully yielded believer. You've never come to that place where you said, Lord, whatever, whenever, wherever, I am totally yours, and I want to surrender my all to you and uh, trust you. I am encouraging today to let the Holy Spirit of God minister to your heart, and then you respond in the way that he, uh, he directs you uh, later on. In our text this morning, three things, but before we say what they are, let's just read the text. Verse 19, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That would be John. And when Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, as we look and, and we, we kind of contain our thoughts within this very context of verses here, I think there's three things in this simple text, and there's many other verses and many other, in the other Gospels that talk about discipleship, but I'm going to limit my thought to here. And the first thing we see, that if I really want to follow Christ, then I need to learn, number one, to avoid comparisons with others, to avoid comparisons with with others. And as you look at verse 20, we can see what, what is happening. So Jesus makes those two little word statement, and he says, follow me. Now, I'm assuming at this point, because of the text, that Jesus actually gets up and he starts moving somewhere. Peter then takes those words literally. Jesus said, follow me. He gets up, he's walking, and now Peter's following Jesus. Well, John's the same way. He wants to fall, and so he gets up, and he starts walking. And as the three of them are walking, Jesus now, uh, excuse me, Peter now is, is looking at his friend John, and he says in verse 21, Lord, what about this man? Now, why did Peter say that? What was he thinking? 
I dare say if you would take five commentaries on the Gospel of John, you might get a different response uh, to that question. But I think it's a, to me at least, it's a pretty easy one answer. Let's consider the context, because any text taken out of context is a pretext, and we want to stay ourselves confined. Remember, we're taking a week after a week after a week, four weeks on this. This all took place at one happening. This all took place in just a matter of hours, John chapter 21. Jesus had come to shore. He said, come and dine. He did a miracle of the fish. They brought in 153. Jesus is serving them. He's feeding them fish, having a bagel, good cup of coffee, no doubt, and uh, just having a wonderful time of fellowship. Then, right, he looks at Peter right before the seven disciples. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you have 100% kind of love for me? Peter says, Lord, you know I like you. Jesus said, do you love me? I like you. Peter said, Jesus said, do you even like me? Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I like you. And each time, even with that limited response of commitment, Jesus recommissions Peter. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep. And so that is on Peter's mind. But no sooner has he said that, then he says, I'm going to tell you something else, Peter. Very, very. When you were young, you walked where you wanted to go. You dressed yourself. You carried yourself wherever you wanted to go. But when you're going to be an old man someday, another one is going to carry you, and they're going to stretch forth your hands. And this spake he signifying by what death Peter would glorify the Lord. So Peter is now told, as he was unfaithful shortly ago denying the Lord, he is going to be faithful when he becomes an old man. And so he's going to die a martyr's death. A death, a horrible death, a death by crucifixion, even likened to that his Lord. And so I think what Peter's thinking is simply this. John's his buddy. John's his close friend. And he looks at John, and then those words are still ringing in his ears. And he says, Lord, is he going to have to go through that same valley of the shadow of death by, by martyrdom that I'm going to go through? And so I think that I don't I think that's his attitude. It's out of concern and love for John. And then that's when the Lord Jesus Christ gives that very emphatic answer in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, those are blunt words, but I'm telling you the truth. I don't know how they ring in your ears, but it's like a symphony ringing in my ears. Why? Because one of the things we do as Christians, and I would say that we as pastors can be as guilty as any, is that we compare. And Paul gives us a word in 2 Corinthians about this when he says, they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. Next slide. He says, those people are not wise. And so if you want to be a person who is called lacking wisdom, then just start the role of comparing different people, different things, yourself with others, because that's not a wise thing to do. Compare, compare, compare. And we crave to know, how do I stack up next to this other person? Um, and then, you know, we go through the role and we're surfing the internet and we're reading a Christian magazine. And then it's saying, you know, read this book, buy this book. Go to this seminar, 
uh, get a hold of this video series. And all the way along, there's a, a little undercurrent message saying, you're not measuring up. You're not good enough. Look at these people. These people will be able to bring you up because what you're doing sometimes is comparing, comparing, comparing. So that you're thinking, you know, the preaching could be better, the worship could be better, the missions could be better, evangelism could be better, etc., etc. And meanwhile, we're looking around, and we end up comparing ourselves uh, with other people. And then the words of Jesus are a melodious sound in my ears. What is that to you? You just keep focused on me. You keep looking. Let's, let's go eyeball to eyeball. Jesus is saying, don't you worry about John. I'm well able to take care of him. You just keep on following me. Jesus has a work for Peter to do. He has a work for John to do. He's got a work for you to do. He's got a work for me to do. And besides that, he's going to give us all the grace and strength that we need to do it. And I just need to trust him for grace and to do what he's called me to do. So I hope you find encouragement and freedom today when you hear Jesus saying to you about all your fretting comparisons, what is that to you? Don't compare yourself among yourself. You just keep focused on me and you follow me. I like the words that Gene Campbell Morgan said, summarizing uh, this thought. He said, the whole point of the reference to John was that our Lord deals with each of his own separately and in ways which others can't understand and about others which others have no right to ask questions. That is, that is just so true. He's got a plan specifically with you. He created you. He recreated you through the new birth. He's gifted you. He knows all about you. And he's got a perfect plan. And he's saying, just trust me for my grace and that I will lead you because I'm going to be faithful to do that. Avoid comparison with others. Number two, he says another thing. Very practical. Avoid, uh, anticipate misunderstanding from others. Anticip if you want to follow Christ, and especially the higher of the level that your platform becomes of influence, especially in speaking, I promise you, I guarantee you, you will be misunderstood by others. I look at it this way. If they got confused with Jesus' words, what makes me think they're not going to misunderstand what I'm saying? Verse 23, so practical. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, that is John, was not to die, Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter, we've already talked about your destiny. Now you're asking about John. Listen, if I want John to live until I come back again at the rapture, what is that to you? That's none of your business. You just keep focused on me. I'll handle John. Now, apparently, the disciples started spreading the rumor that John was not going to die. And so we're glad John 21 was written. Because in John 21, that rumor that started 2,000 years ago would probably still be going on today and causing many to stumble unless John corrected it in, in his 21st chapter. Jesus never said that John was going to be alive at the coming of Christ. He said, if I will that to happen, it could have happened. 
But he didn't say it was going to happen. And of course, what we know is John did die. He died somewhere in the 90s on the Isle of Patmos in, in exile. And just imagine now, for 2,000 years, people all through the centuries, that rumor would have been passed down. Hey, Jesus said he wasn't going to die, but he died. Somebody's got to be wrong there. Can we really trust Jesus? Can we really trust the Bible? And John corrects that misunderstanding uh, with this clarification that he gives. So he's got a role for Peter. He's got a role for, for John but that still does remind me as a disciple that every time I open my mouth, including this morning, I guarantee you somebody will misunderstand what I was trying to say. I guarantee you. And sometimes it's in a small group meeting. Sometimes it can be in a personal counseling. Someone says, well, you know what Pastor Sons and you No, he didn't say that. But sometimes those rumors just, and we are being misunderstood. And so you just got to hang tough and you got to realize as you follow the Lord, you're going to be misunderstood. Uh, you should avoid comparisons with others. But now I want us to go back to the initial two most important words here. And those words are follow me. Now you would have thought, and I was thinking actually in preparation that I would start the message with those words, but I really want to uh, end the message with those words. Those two little words, follow me. I think most of us, when we look at that, uh, it kind of summarizes every teaching Jesus would make about discipleship. It may seem difficult to obey, but it's not difficult to understand, really. I mean, who among us, from the youngest to the most elderly to the newest person in the scriptures to the best scholar here, what person doesn't can't understand, follow me, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it may be difficult to obey, but it's not difficult to understand. And let me also say this. His commands do not call for dialogue on our parts, but for obedience. You got it? When he says, follow me, he's not saying, let's talk about it. It's a command. It doesn't call for dialogue. It calls for obedience. He's the Lord, he's God, I'm not, get over it. It's just about as simple as that right there. So he calls us as the Lord of glory to follow him. Now, I want to reverse the two words, though, for a minute and end with those. When Jesus says, follow me, we, we can get in our heads the idea of what's behind that. I want to emphasize not the word follow. I want to emphasize the word me because to me that's the key. Who is it that is asking you to give your all to him? Who is it that's asking you to be willing to die for him, to sacrifice for him? You better be careful who you're following. Is this person worthy of my all? Is he really worth it to die for? I've got to answer that, and so do you. And I think as we just stick with the Gospel of John, it's going to help us, hopefully, at the conclusion, to say, how can I not say I willingly have decided to follow Jesus? I'm going to try to cut some things out of here, because as usual, I went a little longer at the 8.30. But I want us just to think about John himself. And how Jesus is depicted in the Gospel of John. And when you go back to chapter 1, I mean, what a beginning. Matthew talks about Jesus 
going back to Abraham. Mark takes him right at the baptism. Luke takes him because he's emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. He takes him all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, to identify him with the human race. But John, it's mind-boggling. In the verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. And then he goes down and says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the right, the authority to become the sons of God. Who is this man? Going back to, to, to eternity past. He is very God of very God. But in that, what theologians call the hypostatic union at the virgin birth, humanity became linked with deity, and so he becomes the one unique person of all of human history. He is the God-man. He's fully God, and yet he's fully man. Fully God that he represents God, fully human that he represents you and me, when he died upon the cross. And then John takes it just a little bit further. And he says, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I love that word, made him known. It's the Greek word exegeto. Can you think of an English word that comes from that? It's a, uh, it's a word that is used with, with Bible teachers called exegesis, or in the verb form, to exegete. That's where it comes from, and it's to make known. We've got a pastor here that we're so thankful for. Why? Because he's an exegete. He's not an eisegete. A lot of pastors are eisegeting today. What do I mean by eisegeting? I mean, I make up my mind what I want to say to you on a given Sunday morning, and I'm going to write a sermon out, and then after I'm going to tell you what I want to say to you, then I'm going to go to the scriptures, and I'm going to look for verses to back it up. Do you got it? That's eisegesis, reading into the text. I'm not interested in sitting under anybody who's an eisegete. I want somebody who knows the scriptures and will make it known, will exegete it to me for what? Just let the word feed our hearts. That's what ministers to us, right? And we're fed every Lord's Day in a wonderful way. Because, and now Jesus takes, John takes that very word, exegete, and he says, Jesus has exegeted the Father. In other words, everything I want to know about God the Father Everything the Father is, Jesus is. And if that doesn't boggle your mind, Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter. And that word another means not another of a different kind, but another of the same kind. Everything that the Holy Spirit is, Jesus is. Everything Jesus is, the Father is. We worship the one true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. If that doesn't boggle your mind, you must be nuts. How do you get a hold of that? This is the one who says, follow me. Who wouldn't follow him? Chapter 2, he changes the water into wine. He goes and he cleanses the temple. He fulfills that prophecy, the zeal of the Lord's house is upon me. He tells those around him, Destroy this temple. I'm not talking about the temple building. Destroy this temple. This fake he's signifying his body. 
destroy this body, go ahead. But in three days, I'm going to raise it up. Who else can say, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise myself from the dead? Nobody in their right mind. And they did destroy the body. They crucified him. And the third day, the Father raised him, the Holy Spirit raised him, that's true, but Jesus raised himself from the dead because he's God. Chapter 3. He talks to this very well-known, that the teacher of Israel of the day, the best Jewish teacher of the day, who's also a Pharisee, who's also a member of the Supreme Court, most respected man in Israel. Jesus looks at him and says, that's not enough. It's not based upon who, what you've done or what you've attained. You must be what? Born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And God proved it that he loved, so loved the world, he gave his son. So now he moves from the most respected man in Israel and he goes up to a little neighboring city called Samaria where they had no dealings with the Jews and he meets one of the most sinful people of the day. There's a woman, she comes to draw water at noon. Why? So she doesn't have to face other people and the men of the city who normally would come out after the sun went down and they would come out around six at night. She suffered too much ridicule. She was sleeping around with five men in the city. And Jesus, compassionate, merciful, God of mercy and grace, reaches out to her. Drink of this water that I will give you. You'll never thirst again. I will satisfy every longing of your deep heart. Others have taken advantage of you. I'll never take advantage of you. I will serve you and I will minister to you. She believed and brought the whole city out to hear him. We go to the end of the chapter, and there's a nobleman. He comes to Jesus. Do you ever have a child that was sick? Do you ever have a child die? Do you ever have a child you thought might die? The nobleman did. Jesus, my son's dying. Please come to my home. I live 18 miles away in Capernaum. Please come. He's dying. And if you don't go there, he's going to die. Jesus says, Go your way. Your son lives. And the man goes home. He talks to his servants. His son's been healed. He says, what time did he get healed? And he found out it was the exact time that Jesus said, go your way. Incredible. He didn't have to go to Capernaum because he's on the present. He can just speak the word. Your son lives. Chapter 5, there's a man. He hadn't walked for 38 years. You want to be made whole? That's a question, by the way, he asks everybody here, everybody out there. Do you want to be made whole? Not everybody wants to be made whole. Not everybody really wants help. That's why he asked the question, do you want to be made whole? Take up your bed and walk. And the man danced the Irish jig or the Israeli jig or whatever he danced. The aura, I guess. That's Jesus. Then later in that chapter, he's going to say, by the way, I'm going to do something. Every person's body is going to come up out of the grave. Those who have done good, meaning those who have put their faith in God unto life, and those who have rejected Christ unto damnation, that every body will come out and they'll stand before the judgment. Chapter 6, he's the bread of life. 5,000. 
men, probably 20,000. They have five loaves, two fishes. He multiplies them. They're all fed and satisfied. He's going across the sea. He calms the Sea of Galilee. See how the waves and the willows, billows obey him. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the bread of life. Chapter 7, he's the heavenly one. He's, he left heaven and he came down to reveal God to us. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, he declares himself, I am the light of the world. You walk in darkness, you don't have to do it anymore. I'm the light of the world. And he, he de demonstrates that in chapter 9. How do you demonstrate you're the light of the world? You take a man, I think the only one with a congenital disease that Jesus healed, who had never seen daylight. He had never seen the temple. He never saw a camel. He never saw a sheep. He never saw the Jordan River. He never saw a thing. And after 40 years, Jesus puts saliva mixed with clay and puts it on his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He washes and he sees. And then they attack him, the Pharisees. Are you sure this is the man that was born blind? Are you the parents? Are you sure? Then they go after him. How could you say Jesus healed? Jesus is a sinner. This man didn't know A from Z. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I know his name is Jesus, and I know I was blind, and now I see. That's the testimony you have as a child of God. You don't have all the answers. You'll never have all the answers. Neither do I. In omissional May, you've got a testimony. The testimony you have is the most precious possession you have. Don't lose it. But share it. I don't know the answer to that question, sir, but I know this. For 21 years, I walked this way. Christ came into my life, and he transformed my life. That I do know. Chapter 10, he's the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives us life for the sheep. He's also the door. He's the only way to heaven. Have you come to the door? Have you come to the good shepherd who gave his life to you? Chapter 11, man's been dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. Move the stone away. Lord, he's been dead four days. He stinketh by now. Lazarus, come forth. Out comes a dead man who'd been in the grave for four days. I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he said? Chapter 12, he's the king of Israel. He comes riding in on the colt, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Behold, he cometh on the colt. He's the king of Israel. Hosanna to the son of David. Glory to God. Chapter 13, this God of the universe that we talked about and have seen for 12 chapters now is seen with a, a pail of water and a towel and he's taken the role of the most humble, lowly servant of the day. And he washes her feet. Do you ever have your feet washed? You think it's humbling to wash somebody's feet. Try having your feet washed by somebody. Jesus, the creator, washes their feet because he's the servant of Jehovah. But in chapter 14, he's the coming one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes of the Father but, but through me. He's going to go away and he's going to prepare a place for us. He's got a place, a home, an apartment, a dwelling place, a mansion, whatever version you read. He's preparing a place for you. And if I prepare a place, go away and prepare a place. I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am there, you may be also. Though we're listening for the sound of the trumpet. Come up hither and we're going to be with the Lord in the rapture.
Chapter 15, this God of glory deigns to live in and through you. He says, I'm the vine, but you're the branches. If you abide in me and I, and I abide in you, he says, you're going to bear much fruit. And if you abide in me and I abide in you, you shall ask what you will to be done unto you. You're the branch. You're the living branch. He's the true vine. All life comes from him. And then you bear witness as a good testimony and you bear the fruit of the Spirit of God. Because in chapter 16, he is the theme of the Holy Spirit that is coming. And the Holy Spirit points everybody to the Lord Jesus Christ. He never seeks glory for himself. He always puts the glory on the Son of God. Chapter 18 is in the garden. Looks like he's a victim. No, he's not. He's the victor. And there in that garden, 400, some say 600, some 2,000, I don't know. Roman soldiers come to arrest him. Judas betrayed him. Jesus takes the lead. Who are you seeking? Captain said, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what happened next? He spoke two words. They were the same words that God gave Moses 1,500 years earlier when Moses says to God, you're sending me to take the, uh, go to Pharaoh and bring the, have him let go the children of Israel who have been in bondage for 430 years. Who in the world am I going to say have sent me? God says, tell them who. I am that I am. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Ego in me. I am. Remember what happened? All the soldiers fell flat on their back. Helpless. Jesus is no victim. He's the victor. It was part of the plan of redemption. Because in chapter 19, he's the Passover lamb. They nail him to a cross. He gives seven last sayings. It is finished. The veil of the temple ran in two. The centurion saying, my goodness, we just crucified the Son of God. Who else determines the exact second they will die? It doesn't say the Spirit left Jesus. It doesn't say he died. It says he put forth his head and he commended his Spirit unto God the Father. Into thy hands I commend. He chose the very split second he would die. They took that body off that cross because the Sabbath day was hastening on. They put him in that cold, damp tomb. We wait a couple of days, now it's Sunday morning. She's bawling her eyes out. Woman, why are you weeping? They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know what they have done with him. I wonder, I'm going to ask Mary, some, what did you plan to do with that body? What are you going to do? She didn't care. Somehow love triumphs everything. Faith died with Thomas. Hope died with the Emmaus disciples. Love never died through converted Mary Magdalene. Miriam Rabboni. She recognized the voice, the tone. She fell. Stop clinging to me. I'm going to my God, your God, my Father, your Father. But go tell the disciples. He appears to them. Eight days later, he appears with Thomas present. Thomas, you didn't, you weren't around. I understand you don't believe. Put your hands into my side, Thomas, where they stuck the spear. 
Put your hands into my nail print hands, Thomas. Do you believe now? My Lord and my God. Wow. The climax of the gospel of John. Jesus said, but blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe in you. That's you and I. That's anyone who believes. But it's not done. Chapter 21, he's the great shepherd of the sheep. He's going to care for them. He's going to serve them. He's going to forgive them. He's going to control their destiny. He's got a path for them to follow. And he's providing all that for you and me. He's going before us, even the mission. He's preparing people out there. I don't know who they are. People out there right now are being prepared. He's preparing us. Because God does all the initiating. This is the one that says, follow me. And the only not only spiritual, but logical response is to say, I will follow Jesus, no turning back. He has my all. He has everything of me there is to have. I will forsake the world, and Jesus is paramount. That's his glory. Let me now close, and I'll wrap it up within a few minutes. We see his grace. We see his glory, but now we see his grace. I almost switched it and said, let's see his grace, because when you get to the glory, it kind of capstones of everything. But now that glorious God just magnifies the grace of God, doesn't it, when you think about it? So we'll skip the verses in John 1 where it talks about he's full of grace, full of grace for grace, but grace and truth came for the Jesus. What I want you to note is this. This God of glory, whose name is Jesus, is initiating every work of redemption. No one ever became a believer. I don't care if it's Moses, Elijah, I don't care if it's Nicodemus or you or me, except God initiated that work. And he began by putting what? Eternity into their hearts. And then the Holy Spirit, as the old Methodist preacher said, he's the hound of heaven. Jesus is sending them out to draw a sense of conviction, a sense of a need. The beauty here is that Jesus comes to these Galilean fishermen. They had nothing to offer. They weren't too bright. They weren't educated. They weren't cultured. They just plainly weren't the sharpest tools in the shed, just like you. When he got you, he didn't get a whole lot, except the whole lot of sin that he bore on the cross. And he deigns to use you if you come in a spirit of humility and grace. He takes the initiative. I can almost remember the day after I was saved and I read Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestinated us unto the adoption of sons, to the praise of his glory, in whom we have redemption through his blood. 
There's an adoption of sons. I've been adopted. When you're adopted, baby, you don't have much initiative, do you? It was 30, 32 years ago, I was flying from Charlotte back home to Washington, D.C., and I always pray. I shouldn't say always, that'd be a lie. I normally pray, Lord, if there's, I'd love to talk to somebody, uh, prepare their heart, prepare, just lead us. And sure enough, the plane was packed. I was on one of those middle rows of U.S. air economy flights, and there was a young lady sitting next to me, beautiful. Young college student, University of Georgetown, majoring in applied linguistics, getting her master's degree. And I didn't talk to her very long before I realized she had just become a Christian. I believe it was through a campus ministry. No one in her family knew the Lord. Maria is her name. She reminded me of my daughters. <laughs> so I decided that day, I'm going to adopt Maria. I need a third daughter. And I did. She didn't even know it. She went on my prayer list, and I stayed in communication with her. She graduated, she moved out to California. We stayed in touch, back and forth. And God, pray, pray that the Lord will lead me the husband of his choosing. Shannon came. What a great guy. Air Force, a military man, career man. He just retired as a bird, full bird colonel. And then they started praying for children. Sometimes you can't. So what do you do? What some very noble, brave, courageous people do. They adopt a child. And uh, so they began. And one by one in China. We followed them every step of the way. It's a long process. It's a tedious one. It's hard. It's discouraging. But I got pictures. Holding that baby. Out in some unknown place in China. So along comes Melanie. She graduated this year. She's going to college, university. Kristen. Daniel. And Benjamin, Zechariah, five beautiful children. Now they're getting all grown up. One of these days, these little kids are going to realize what happened. They're going to realize they had nothing to do with it. All that they've enjoyed in the United States of America with a godly Christian home, knowing the way of redemption, was all of grace. Shannon and Maria took the initiative. They did it all. They paid the price. Do you see what now it means when it says God adopted you? And he did it in eternity past. Before you were ever even conceived in your mother's womb. And then when you were conceived, he formed you in your mom's womb. He made you. And then he set a certain date. He said, I'm going to adopt him into my family. And you heard the gospel and you trusted Christ. And you became a child of God, adopted into the family of God. Before the sun was ever formed, the stars ever cast into space. 
And now this Savior says, and this God of grace and glory says, follow me. What will you do? What will you do sitting out there right now? We've got a foot in both worlds. There's a battle. God wants you to have the victory. If you've never been born again, trust Christ as your Savior this morning. If you know him as your Savior, say, Lord, you have everything there is to have in me, just like this little card that's waiting for you to pick up out there. Whatever, whenever, wherever. Lord, today, May 2nd, 2021, I declare you are the Lord and Master of my life. I give you it all. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, our Father, for your grace and your glory. And as we come to the table of the Lord, I pray that we would indeed celebrate, that we would thank you for that bread representing the body that bore our sins and the cup that represents the bloodshed. Help us to be a good disciple for the Lord Jesus, to whose name we pray, amen.